On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, we're recasting Nate's 2019 discussion with Shelley Sorensen and Christian Swain about the Jim Morrison biography, No One Here Gets Out Alive. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I've got the distinct pleasure of being joined by two of my colleagues in the Pantheon Podcasting Network. We've got the rock and roll librarian, Shelley Sorensen, and Christian Swain, the major domo of the whole network, and the rock and roll archaeologist. Welcome. Hi, Thanks, Nate. Nate. And today we're going to talk about a classic of rock literature, No One Here Gets Out Alive, by Jerry Hopkins and Danny Sugarman, both of whom are deceased. So this is a perfect way to cover a real cornerstone of rock music literature uh, when we don't have the authors to go to. So thanks so much for coming on and, and helping us discuss Jim Morrison and the Doors. I love that we get to make up whatever we want because there's be no dispute from the authors. Well, you know, some people say that uh, Danny Sugarman and Jerry Hopkins did just that. Uh, yes, they, they did, didn't they? Biography yeah. of, of their dead former uh, acquaintance and in Sugarman's case, former client. But we'll get to that at the end. Let's just jump right in there. I mean, this is a biography of, of Jim Morrison. Uh, came out in 1982, I believe, about 11 years after he died. Was an enormous bestseller. I mean, this was in the, the racks at the airports at 7-Elevens. This was a trade paperback. It had a picture of Jim Morrison at, from 1967, shirtless and beautiful, just immortal. It triggered a Rolling Stone cover story, said he's hot, he's sexy, he's dead, and kind of triggered the whole 60s revival that was a big pop culture factor in the 80s. Well, what was it about mid-60s L.A. that made it such a great place to launch a rock career, Shelley? Well, you know, at that time in L.A., it was a big, of course, a big TV and movie capital and um, was increasingly becoming a music capital as well. And at that time in 1964, um, Jim started, Jim Morrison started studies at the UCLA Film School. And this was what they called, the professors called the golden age of film 
at UCLA and in and in Los Angeles, the faculty included the top directors, and the students included the no other no none other than Francis Ford Coppola. So Jim was right there, you know, in the middle of uh, the burgeoning film kind of industry at the time. And on the weekends, he went to Venice Beach, which had been a mecca for the Beat Generation in the in the fifties, and still to this day, not even in the 80s, but now still has kind of a bohemian tradition. So it was, you know, a ripe kind of time for all these different, you know, movies, TV, music to kind of counter, you know, intra-fertilize, if that's a a word, probably not. Um, And, you know, I think it it was just, he was in the right place at the right time kind of thing. What do you think, Chris? Um, well, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I might add, uh, you know, there's been many golden ages in Hollywood, uh, specifically in the, the uh, early 1960s. Um, you know, there was a uh, the, the French New Wave was was definitely in vogue. Uh, a lot of experimentalism uh, was going on uh, both in film and in music. Um, uh, very um, avant garde. And, uh, you know, Jim uh, and uh, his uh, UCLA uh, compatriots, uh, including Ray Kurzweil, uh, were were interested in in, in those kind of uh, boundary pushing uh, concepts uh, and ideas. Uh, as far as L.A., uh, I think he hit the nail on the head, uh, at least in America, while New York is considered the media capital, uh, certainly at that time. Um, you know, L.A. is where the entertainment uh, business uh, w- was really still ground zero and and, and, and has maintained that uh, ever since. Um, and so uh, to, uh, to be able to take literally uh, the British invasion and and um, uh, digest it, and uh, and then uh, create a response. Uh, naturally, uh, it seems that LA was a, a fitting place uh, for that in the mid '60s. Yeah, and you had the birds and love uh, on the Sunset Strip. The birds yeah, broke specifically, out, yeah. You know, with Columbia Records big in '65, and then love kind of ruled the scene on the streets for the next couple of years. And that's the band that Jim Morrison wanted to emulate. Like their whole goal was to be as big as love. So yeah. uh, Arthur Lee and company. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, there, there were others, uh, that, that didn't, uh, quite make it, but, uh, you know, by then the, uh, I think the troubadour, uh, was around, um, you know, obviously the whiskey, a go, go had, uh, switched from a dinner, uh, supper club as they used to call them, uh, to, uh, something more akin to, uh, what we recognize today, the whiskey being a, you know, a real rock and roll club. Yeah. It's interesting. I- go ahead, Shelley. Oh, that's one of the things I thought was interesting about how the book described when Jim lived uh, near the L.A. Strip and the Whiskey A Go-Go and Electra Records is that he could he had everything there within walking distance, you know, that he it was central to the bar and club scene. And and he lived with his girlfriend um, in Laurel Canyon. And so he he just. Um, you know, physically, everything was there where he needed it. Yeah, I think it was Krieger that lived, um, Robbie Krieger, the guitarist that lived in Laurel Canyon. I think Jim stayed in basically flophouse motels that were within walking distance. Laurel Canyon's <laughs> yeah. a little right. bit of a drive yeah. from there. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 his, and his girlfriend's apartment, I thought that was in Laurel yeah. Canyon, but I guess it was nearer to the strip, uh, Pamela Corson. 
Yeah, so you might have been in Laurel Canyon at one point. I I, I love tracking that super closely. Um, yeah. but what was what was it about the America that was ready for Jim Morrison? What was going on in the sixties oh, wow. at that that's, point? That's a big question. Well, <laughs> there was there was so much going on in the sixties. Uh, you know, experimentation with with LSD and you know marijuana, the whole sexual liberation. Um, and I, I think one thing that Jim and the Doors really, um, you know, well, Jim was kind of the quintessential person to, 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 you know, experience the generation gap, which was huge. Then he not only denied his parents' ideas and value and later on he denied he said they were dead he said they you know denied that they even existed and um and and then also um he he read he was very well read and he his favorite book was jack kerouac's uh on the road road, and that was like the beat generation and it was published in 57 so all the kids you know at that time in the 60s were reading that um reading that book and when Jim lived kind of briefly in San, in Alameda near San Francisco he came into the city and you know frequented City Lights bookshop and read all the beat poetry and Ferlinghetti and Ginsburg were favorites of his so this was all kind of going into the whole uh revolution of the 60s that he was you know pretty much at the forefront of I think well, let's let's uh, you know face it. Uh, you know, post-war uh, uh, world is uh, you know dominated by America because we're the last man standing. Uh, you know, our culture was uh, uh, was uh, were the victors. Uh, you know, we were hardly touched uh, by the atrocities uh, of uh, of four years or long, six years of war, uh, and um, you know, we benefited from uh, from being. Uh, the apex uh, culture, uh, and then we began to export that culture, uh, notably uh, films and, and music. Um, and uh, you, you know, by the time you get in the, the mid nineteen sixties, uh, you know, America is a dominant uh, technological player, uh, and uh, um, you know, uh, obviously, um, you know, capitalism is uh, in a battle, a uh, pitched battle with communism. Um, there is a lot of, uh, of fear and uncertainty because of the bomb um, and uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, humanity had to contemplate that its entire existence could be wiped out in a, about a 30 minute period. And I think that began to weigh on uh, some of these. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, as we know, Jim uh, comes from a uh, military family. His his dad was a rear admiral in the Pacific Fleet uh, at the time, and was actually uh, 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 inconsequentially involved in the Gulf of Tonkin affair. And, uh, you know, as far as Jim, his uh, being a little bit different than than uh, some of his contemporaries, uh, you know, rock and roll was uh, fairly relegated to, uh, you know, uh, subject matter of girls and cars in its early uh, uh, incarnation, uh, the original pioneers. And then, you know, I I think it'd be fair to say that uh, Bob Dylan and a few others uh, began to change that and uh, uh, lyrical content uh, began 
uh, to become uh, deeper and exploratory. And I think Jim took it in a very, very dark uh, way. I, I, I like to think of him as, uh, you know, the, the real uh, Prince of Darkness, uh, to take that title away from uh, some of the, the heavy metal uh, guys, notably Ozzy Osbourne, uh, because I think he's the one that really invented, um, uh, you know, shock rock on a uh, pop scale, on a, on a grand scale. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, the medium uh, of choice uh, at that time was AM radio. There was no FM radio uh, and uh, AM radio. Um, played uh, whatever was a hit, uh, black, white, uh, rock, pop, country, uh, folk. Uh, it didn't matter uh, one after another. And uh, I think that um, these guys, uh, along with, uh, you know, the Farfisa, Ray Manzarek uh, uh, keyboard sound created uh, a sonic uh, difference uh, out there that um, uh, the, uh, the kids really uh, gravitated to. Yeah, and Electra Records was right there in L.A. too, and they just had a trial run with Love. They'd put out two Love albums to reasonable success for a band that refused to leave L.A., essentially. Uh, and so they couldn't you know, go to that Sullivan show, et cetera, et cetera, and, and weren't doing national tours. But Electra had introduced themselves to the rock market as a, as a middling player. They were already a pretty well-established folk player. So you know, it was perfect. They, they, they had a really aggressive approach to the marketing, putting giant billboards over yeah. the yeah, you know, uh, Sunset Strip with Morrison's very pretty face on it, and you know the time time was perfect. And it was also interesting because it was the last window when the Teeny Bopper magazines, like Sixteen and Tiger Beat, were essentially the only rock press in America. And so you've got this artist that you would now consider alternative or underground, and within just a couple of years, he would have been considered that. You know, the Doors would be the kind of band that would only be on FM radio. They would only put out albums that that you might not even see their faces, or you know, much less their leather-clad bodies. But instead, you know, Jim Morrison is doing these spreads, these fashion spreads. You know, looking as sexy as all get out, and driving the little girls wild. And let's hear the yeah. first song that that um, Jim Morrison sang for Ray Manzarek, who was a classmate of his at the UCLA Film School. Uh, and and uh, was a practicing professional semi-pro musician and jim had no musical experience they bumped into each other in the beach and jim sang him the, some of the words to let's moonlight drive to the moon. uh-huh. let's climb through the Moonlight Drive, which appeared on the Doors' second album, I can't remember. I think it's Strange Days. I always want to call it People Are Strange, which was the hit single <laughs> off that album. Right, but right. and listening to that song, it's a it's a perfectly good Doors song, but it's not one lyrically that blows you away. But it blew Ray Manzarek away, and and mm-hmm. you know they were they were off and running. But Shelley, the book, I, I remember I was a kid, a seventh grader, reading this totally impressionable and i would not let my grader read this book uh <laughs> but what what did and i remember just being horrified at what i i just thought he was the jerk of all time what what did you yeah. feel about jim morrison from the way the book tells his life story well um you know 
actually, the mo- most I know about knew about Jim Morrison before I read this book was the Oliver Stone movie that was, I guess, was based on this book, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I wasn't a Doors fan, and I, you know, I didn't buy Doors albums. I was, uh, let's see, I was born in '57, so you know, I remember being in junior high school and hearing their music, but um, I, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't attracted to them um, as a band or him as a musician. Um, And this book purports to, you know, it's, it tells all about basically, you know, that he was an alcoholic from the time he was a teenager. And um, I think, you know, it's very warts and all about his, um, about his drug and alcohol use, about his treatment of his friends, about his treatment of women. Uh, so he, you know, I, I don't think it um, helped me feel more kindly toward Jim Morrison, even though the writers say they um, describe him, you know, his more sensitive side and as a poet and a visionary and um, all you know, somebody that was very important to the rock and roll music scene. Um, I, I, it didn't really kind of change my mind about him, you know, as a person kind of being a self selfish, self-centered, you know, alcoholic. Um, and, um, so I don't know, you know, his, his upbringing was, you know, he, he was raised by these very conservative parents, as Christian was saying. His father was in the military and his mother was the perfect military mother, you know, and wife. They moved frequently and she kept house and, you know, they weren't abused or, you know, anything like that. But Jim was totally um, uh, an ex- excessive person, even as a child. And, you know, kind of tortured his siblings in a loving way and then, you know, and then was nice to them and, you know, really did extreme dangerous things. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it was the rock and roll lifestyle that 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 turned him into an alcoholic like like you might have seen on The Star is Born or something like that. Um, yeah. And and I think that. um you know, he, I don't know, he, he just rejected his parents out and out. I, um, just because he was as a symbol of authority, I think, um, by the time he was, you know, he had moved out of the house, he barely, he didn't even speak to them again. Oh, he would tell interviewers that, uh, they were dead. Right. And that was on the first liner notes of the first record that he had no parents. They were dead. Uh, you know, personally, I, I, uh, I, um, of course, uh, Christian knows my story, but I, I, uh, sympathize more with his mother than I do with him <laughs> as, a, as a mother of a, of an alcoholic who rejects, you know, their family. It's, uh, I think it's just very painful. I don't, yeah. Anyway, so I, I didn't come away from the book with kind of a, a better impression of Jim as a person, but maybe more respect for him as uh as a poet and a lyricist i would say that's my and, and you know, well n- I, yeah not I, a fan i, I, I think <laughs> uh, look I, I jim jim is obviously a, a complicated man um he um um uh, childish 
uh, 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 manipulative uh, and, uh, you know, interested uh, uh, intensely on uh, the, the darker aspects of, of life. Uh, and, um, uh, and obviously, uh, had, uh, demons, uh, that, uh, he couldn't work out and, you know, self-medicated himself to death. Um, but, uh, as, as a good artist, he was able to, um, tap into that and present that, uh, in a public manner. Uh, that uh, connected with a yeah. with a large audience and and exposed uh, some of these feelings, which I don't think had been uh, uh, really uh, explored in popular music up until that time. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that struck me rereading this, you know, forty years after I read it the first time, was the importance of his theatrical and film background and, and, and also how intellectually he was of all the musicians, you know, I've researched in the couple of years I've been doing this project. The only one with an education comparable is, is Bing Crosby who went to a Catholic law school and read all the great philosophers, you know, I mean, uh, Jim Morrison is an incredibly well-educated person, Oh yeah, you know, who read all this philosophy and, and probably took himself a little bit too seriously, but I think he's also unique and, innovative in that he was self-consciously analyzing the rock scene and and he had been a fan of elvis presley as a kid but he wasn't he wasn't a greasy-haired rocker he was not somebody who was a singer from day one and out in the clubs and you know singing and and he wasn't a folk singer like you know jerry garcia or the birds or you know he wasn't playing in latin bars like skip spencer moby grave i mean he was he was an intellectual he was a film student and pretty bad film student, it seems like. Like he washed yeah. <laughs> out of UCLA completely, but really understood something about how to manipulate crowds. Like I, I sort of forgave him for his being such a manipulative jerk with everybody he knew when I realized that became his art. That was what he was doing. He was just experimenting with this idea of control. And he clearly had awesome powers in that direction. And that kind of is, I think, what bit him in the ass. I mean, he got everything he wanted so fast with the doors, you know, they're quickly succeeding on the club circuit in LA, quickly signed to a label. There's a right. you know brief delay in getting a hit single. Their first single flops, but their second one is a monster. And boom, you know, he's all his dreams of having a platform from which to pontificate and manipulate audiences, you know, comes true. And then it's like, wow, was that worth <laughs> you know Yeah, be careful worth- yeah. be careful what you wish for. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But Shelly, yeah. tell us a yeah. little bit about the other members of the band and like what you felt about them as personalities and the way they're presented in the book. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, well, I thought it was very interesting the way they all met. You already talked about how he met Ray in, um, in the film school and then, you know, on the beach and Ray just went, well, that's the best. Those are the greatest fucking song lyrics I've ever heard. Let's start a rock and roll band and make a million dollars. And, and, uh, you know, quickly, I mean, it was like Ray discovered Jim. Nobody, you know, nobody else discovered Jim. Ray discovered Jim and said, you want to be in our band, in the band that he was in already? And Jim said, I don't play anything. And he said, just, just hold the guitar, you know, on stage. And that's how he got his, his start on stage. But one of the things I thought was interesting was that John Densmore, uh, the drummer, uh, Ray met in his meditation class, and then John introduced Robbie Krieger to them, who he had met in his meditation class. They were all meditators, 
um, which I thought was really interesting for rock musicians. And, Except for Jim. Um, yeah, Jim never, never partook. No, right. Sort of no, they were. The three <laughs> others were meditators, which was probably the only way they could put up with him. Um, and, you know, they and they were all musicians and played a variety of music. John Densmore played um, uh, jazz drumming and in college and Ray Krieger uh, played Robbie. Segovia and folk yeah. blues, flamingo um, and flamingo, flamenco, flamenco, flamenco. <laughs> flamenco. I, I dictated my notes. Uh, That's John Waters, Pink here. Flamingo. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, in fact, he played bottleneck guitar so nicely that Jim wanted him to play kind of exclusively bottleneck on most of his first songs. Um, and so they were, you know, actual musicians. And, um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting that, uh, that they were all meditators. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very so, late 60s yeah. thing to be doing in the mid 60s. They're all kind of ahead of their time there. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. I don't remember it's anybody LA. meditating. Yeah. yeah. LA, <laughs> LA was always ahead of its time for that sort of thing. You know, the land, we are, you guys are in the land of fruits and nuts here because both Sherry and I are born and raised in California. Hey. Yeah, it's true. It's like the cult villains in every Raymond Chandler novel. There's always. Come on always down, man. Through. Yep, yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, I did learn. I did learn to meditate in junior high school. I went to kind of a hippie school. Yeah, we uh, we I did think, transcendental meditation. That was. Yeah, I think Esalon was up and running by '65 too. Mhm, mm mhm, mm yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, uh, by then, um, uh, Albert and Leary had uh, been kicked out of Harvard and were looking for some place to go. I think they were mostly in Mexico at that particular moment. But uh, by, you know, by 64, 65, uh, you know, Ken Kesey has gone through the MK Ultra uh, experiments uh, performed by the CIA and discovered that this, uh, this little uh, drug that they were handing out uh, was really cool without the CIA. And, uh, you know, started stealing some from uh, uh, the the pharmacists uh, at the um, uh, the mental institution he was working at and researching his upcoming book, um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then started handing it out to uh, uh, his uh, buddies, uh, mostly musician friends, who then they started to share it with their musician friends. And uh, mm -hmm. so by by 65, uh, 66, uh, yeah, the, the, the world is turned on its head uh, for those who have um, uh, indulged in uh, the experiment uh, of uh, from uh, Mr. Albert Hoffman. And let's let me jump in and cue another song. This is a uh, Brecht and Viles. Alabama song, which is a completely crazy song for a rock band to cover in 1967. It was a cabaret show tune from decadent Berlin in the 1920s and, and Brecht, you wow. know, the radical communist creator of the alienation effect and all these intellectual theories. So, you know, the doors have been dinged for pretentiousness for covering this, but I think they managed to sew it into there of pretty nicely. This is the Alabama song. Don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. Tell you we must die I tell you 
And that was Jim Morrison and the Doors saying Brecht and Viles' Alabama song, which, I mean, must have blown minds in the 60s. And most kids, like, I know I had no idea who Brecht and Vile were uh, until I heard this song and read Rolling Stone panning the Doors for being pretentious for covering it. And that led me off on a whole voyage of discovery. And I'm sure lots of people. Well, died, I, I don't think you need to go to that I song. I mean, just the, the, the name of the band, you know, taken from uh, Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception uh, is uh, evidence enough of uh, some uh, sort of pretentiousness. <laughs> Absolutely. I have a question for you guys, though, but um, certainly in in Germany, it wasn't called the Alabama song. Right. I mean, I didn't know that about that song, that it was a Brecht um, tune. Uh, I be- why is it I- called the Alabama song? I believe it was called the Alabama song. I should have I should really? have wiki it up before. Christian, oh. you know, I can I can pull up really quick, but it's part of the three penny yeah. opera. And, oh, you yeah. know, Alabama had a worldwide re- infamous reputation as a slave capital. Um, so I'm sure it was oh, not, oh, you, I know, see. Uh-huh. you know, I think it was it was um, just a well-known. I think it was just a commentary on on America. It's also right. called Moon well, of Alabama, I think. Uh, oh, I see. OK. And, and also well, Whiskey well, Bar. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was translated. Oh, show by me the way to the next whiskey bar. Yeah, and it was actually it was from the play Little Mahogany, not the Three Penny Opera. Oh, uh, okay. And it was translated by uh, the English lyrics were written by Elizabeth Hauptmann in 1925. Right. Um. So yeah, I mean, they were just into crazy, weird stuff. It began as a German yeah. poem, and and translated uh, by their purposes. But you know, they were. They were like that movie Cabaret, basically. It was it was the whole yeah. decadent mm-hmm. Weimar Republic thing and, and and stuff. But I found when I went back and listened to the whole Doors catalog, I thought it held up pretty well, especially, you know, compared to their, you know, the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and, and other California bands from sixty class of sixty seven. You know, I think and I think, you know, Rolling Stone infa- infamously in the eighties just hated the Doors. I think they gave their first album three stars and everything else less. And then, right. you know, by the by the time, yeah, Dave Marsh, of all people who, you know, is quoted in the early 70s praising some of their albums in the book, turned pretty viciously on him, I think, influenced by Robert Christgau and my friend Ed Ward, who still hates the doors. But, you know, by the <laughs> 90s edition of the Rolling Stone record guide, they'd thrown in the towel and declared them one of the three apocal California bands of the 60s, along with the Beach Boys and the Grateful Dead. And, and I, you know, to me, like when Ed starts dissing the doors, I just say, well, you know, Patty Smith and Iggy Pop thought they were a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah. Know? And yeah. I think the world cares more about what they thought than what a bunch of rock critics thought. Yeah. Well, as somebody who uh, was born in San Francisco, grew up in L.A., and has lived in San Francisco in the Bay Area for over 40 years, um, I think uh, as far as California goes, there, you know, there was a divide in the kind of music that was going on. And um, I just to tell you um, kind of a personal anecdote, my husband, who's older than me and was 18, 17, 18 in San Francisco in 1967, when I told him I was covering The Doors on this podcast, he said, you know, in, in San Francisco, he said, no one liked The Doors. He said, they, he heard uh, "Light My Fire" and he knew instantly it would be a hit, but he didn't. He didn't like it, and none of his friends liked it. And they were all into, 
you know, seeing Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Mike Bloomfield and, you know, and the Grateful Dead at the Fillmore and, you know, it was a, like a very different aesthetic, um, certainly than the doors. And, and, you know, he said, whereas, uh, Hendrix was a musical genius, they just thought that Morrison was a drunk singer, you know, <laughs> and I know that's not true. A drunk cabaret singer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's obviously not well, true of all of San Francisco because when they came to San Francisco, they were very well received, you know, at the Fillmore and at by, the, um, by the, by the public at itself. the Avalon. Yeah, 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 but let let me jump in here and just say look, there's a huge difference uh in the the mid 60s between the LA uh musicians and that sound versus the San Francisco sound. Uh you know, there's a reason why uh the uh, uh free speechers uh, at Berkeley hated the fucking hippies uh because they wouldn't get off their ass and do anything uh worthwhile. Uh and right. from the hippies perspective, they were like, "No, man, uh you know, we, we want to Explore everything, uh, and you know, most famously uh, in, encapsulated by you know the music of the Grateful Dead, which you know as they grew, you know it was a uh, it was experimental, uh, it, you know it was open, uh, it was loose. Uh, whereas you know L.A. you know was was a professional organization. In fact. You know, most of the bands that we think of out of L.A. had some form of studio players on them, uh, you know, most famously recognized now as the Wrecking Crew, uh, including the Doors. Uh, you know, they didn't have a bass player. And when they needed a bass player, they pulled in uh, some of those great uh, studio cats uh, down in Southern California. So there was a, a level of professionalism that really existed down in L.A. that did not exist in L.A. Uh, in San Francisco. And th there was a, a, a real separation uh, between those two. Two camps at that particular moment. Now, of course, uh, you know this all begins to gel and and uh, become, uh, uh, you know, looking back at history, uh, it seems like you know, well, there's this California moment, but there were two very distinct camps at the time. Yeah, and it's interesting his interactions. Uh, you know, he it talks about him seeing the Jefferson airplane and and not liking them later on, and and it talks about him hanging out with Janis Joplin and. Right. Really being mm -hmm. abusive and awful to her, which yeah. was exactly the kind of thing she was drawn to. You know, they, they were peas in a pod. She's looking yeah. to be right. be humiliated and 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 abused, and he's looking to dish it out. So those two, right. uh, you know, of course, a volatile chemical mix. And he also there's, there's a mention of him seeing Hendrix. I can't remember where, and and you know, crawling up to the stage and grabbing Hendrix by the knees and ankles. You know, to to. Uh, you know, supplicate himself to the greatness yeah, of yeah. Hendrix. So, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are definitely, yeah, those, those currents and rivalries with San Francisco. And I think that the fact that Rolling Stone magazine was in San Francisco just sort of. Mm. That doesn't help the yeah. LA crowd, does it? <laughs> no. And, and, you know, and they, and they definitely flew that flag. I mean, Rolling Stone, if you're familiar with the history of their editorial practices, were very partisan. You know, they loved John Lennon and Yoko. They hated Paul McCartney. They loved the Grateful Dead. Mm. You know, they didn't so much like the doors, although they turned on the dead, too. But, you know, this thing about Morrison as a manipulator and, and you know, he obviously manipulated his audiences. But at the beginning, he was a very skillful manipulator of the press. But then then mm -hmm. he changes in the way, you know, he he behaves toward the press and sort of self-sabotages. Do you think that that was just a function of him being too alcoholic to do his job? Or was that sort of a philosophical switch when he become disillusioned with the whole machinery of success and startup. 
Yeah, I, no, I would I, say disillusion uh, yeah. is definitely a factor, uh, you know, coupled with, uh, you know, massive self-medication. Uh, you have no patience, uh, you know, when you've been asked the same question hundreds of times. Right. And I, yeah, I think, I think, you know, the manipulating the press was hard work. I mean, you had to. <laughs> it is hard really, work. <laughs> you had to think about it and you had to come up, you know, he, he came up with great quotes and. And, you know, um, really um, defined his image in the press by, you know, coming out with these lengthy philosophical things like think of us as erotic politicians. That was one of his quotes. Um, and he, you know, like you said, he was really into being photographed, too, and, you know, wore, you know, a fur coat and jewelry and cut his hair like Alexander the Great. In fact, I thought it was interesting that um, in junior college, he took a class on collective behavior, which was the psychology of crowds. And he he um, learned how to was trying to tell his friends how interesting that was and how they could, you know, look at a crowd and make love to it and cure it and make it riot. And his friends all thought he was nuts. But obviously that was something he used to great effect in his public performances too. And um, let me jump in and, and mm -hmm. cue the next song and then we'll return to that and talk about how he manipulated crowds basically to destroy his own career. But let's first hear Love's Treat. And this is the spoken word bridge of the song so we can hear Jim Morrison, the poet, backed by a rock band. This is Love's Treat by The Doors. There's the store where the creatures meet I Wonder what they do in there Summer, Sunday, and a year I guess I like it fine so far That was Love Street by Jim Morrison and The Doors. And, you know, listening to back, I mean, he's taken a lot of critical brackets, for, bricks and brackets for, for being pretentious and a, quote, bad poet and everything. But to me, when I listen to that, it holds up comparable to like Allen Ginsberg guesting with The Clash or something. I really hear the influence <laughs> of the beats and, and it doesn't. It, to me, it doesn't ruin the song at all or the record. It fits right in. I mean, something like Horse Latitudes or Celebration of the Lizards. A little different, especially when Celebration of the Lizard goes on for 10 minutes on the live album, but, you know, not so bad. But let me let you get back to what you're talking about, Shelley, and and the whole way. Tell a tale of how he instigated, deliberately attempted to instigate a riot in Miami and what the fallout of that was. Right. He, um, you know, he wanted to, he didn't tell the other band members he was going to do this, but he really wanted to. Uh, you know, expose himself and see what would happen if he did that. And, you know, and, and then the story goes back and forth. Did he really expose himself or did he just make it look like he did? And one of the reasons he did that was that he didn't like the, you know, he was getting tired of the adulation that he was getting, this crowd mentality that he had actually created. But then he realized it was going too far and he couldn't just be himself and be a poet and he wanted to put a stop to it so he really purposely sabotaged um his uh i don't know his uh i can't his think career. of the word his, his, yeah, his career 
by doing that. And then, of course, he got, you know, uh, charges pressed against him for indecent exposure. And that trial went on for a really long time. And he was banned by many uh, venues, you know, to play. And when they when they let him come back and play, when they let the doors come back and play, they had to put up huge amounts of money as bond, you know, to in case the concert was canceled or, you know, or interrupted by the police or something like that, or in case he did something else obscene. So yeah, he, he, he really did, you know, uh, grind their career. Uh, you know, of course it, it, it came back up slowly but surely and to a, a great um, degree. But uh, he really put a pause on their career there for a while by doing that. Well, I, I think uh, the, the some of the output uh, wasn't uh, stellar as well. Uh, I also think, uh, you know, uh, music trends uh, were changing rapidly. Uh, there was some uh, catch up in that. Um, let's face it, as we said at the top, uh, you know, Jim wasn't uh, a, a trained musician or, uh, you know, took uh, an interest in what that uh, professional lifestyle is and, and what it means. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, as Nate, you said, uh, you know, the rise to stardom was so fast that uh, it's it's very easy to see, uh, you know, a, a rejection uh, of that, especially for someone who, you know, uh, you know, uh, and, and if I can, you know, you know, Jim was not born, you know, a, a Greek god. Uh, he was actually uh, rather um, um, average and and a little chubby uh, through his elementary school years. He, he didn't blossom until uh, his college age uh, and started to get uh, attention for his attractiveness uh, and his uh, outgoing uh, uh, personality, manipulative or what have you. Um, but he was and always did consider himself a writer and desired to be uh, a poet. And that lifestyle is one uh, of the internal, not the not the external, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the most sympathetic things I thought that the authors did in the book that they pointed out. He did walk it like he talked it. He didn't buy a mansion. He didn't buy mm -hmm. a private plane. He, you know, he never mm -hmm. had big cars that basically he never had anything beyond a week's worth of clothes, a six pack of beer and a handful of books at any given time. And he would be okay. floating from, you know, these flop house motels to various girlfriends apartments. And, you know, he's living basically the Charles Bukowski lifestyle just with the rock star budget. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. he, he, he wasn't materialistic. No. Um, yeah. In fact, yeah. I like how when uh, in the beginning, of the, well, at least the edition I had, one reviewer describes him uh, not the cliches of rise and fall of corruption by wealth and fame, but of a sudden burning out of a volatile, spoiled, gifted, intelligent, artistic individual. So he he you know, like like I said before, he wasn't um, ruined by fame like so many other rock and roll musicians, like, you know, how they're. They're kind of okay, but then they they get turned by their um, by their fame, you know, to to excess and wasting of money and getting in tax debt and all that stuff, um, and and getting addicted to drugs and alcohol. That was that was the way he was. He was already addicted to drugs and alcohol, and he wasn't he wasn't attracted by 
by wealth and materialism at all. He was attracted by art. And, and, and I think it's, I, I agree with you yeah. that that is one, that is one a re redeeming feature of Jim Morrison for me. Well, let me let me add something to that, Shelley. Great point uh, that, um, you know, as Morrison uh, becomes more confident on stage and they grow uh, as an act, it, Jim's concept, which was different than the other three, uh, was to inject more, let us call it performance art uh, into mm -hmm. the live shows uh, and, and try to take them into, uh, you know, some uh, festival of Dionysus. Uh, uh, or what have you, uh, to, to get the audience to, you know, get out of themselves and experience, uh, you know, a, a true art, uh, happening, uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And he also had the whole, you know, you talked about the, the drop in quality of, the, of their albums and it's very clear that third and fourth album, you know, are not as great as their first and second or their last two. And, and, and his attempt to record this, Celebration of the Lizard Suite, which you know is a ten-minute-plus full album-long-side uh, concept of of a suite of poems, you know, set to music. It was very ahead of its time. It looks it he was aiming to do something that the prog rockers would be doing, you know, in in, in just a few years, but they couldn't pull it off. And it kind of reminds me of you know Pete Townsend's Lifehouse, Lifehouse experiment yeah, that yeah, was supposed yeah. to be this whole you know multimedia movie <laughs> concept thing, and it implodes. But they managed to salvage the songs and create their masterpiece. Who's next? And for the Doors, they kind of had to stumble along without, you know, they didn't have the book of songs. The, the, the Celebration of the Lizard is not several great rock songs. You know, it was a it was a suite that was either going to work as a whole or not work at all. They did manage to perform it live, um, but the, their their comeback is sort of it's driven by Robbie and especially Robbie. I think Robbie Krieger is a way underpraised performer and songwriter. He wrote. Agree. Light my fire and and right. hello, you know that, I, I, that's his first song. Yeah, and <laughs> and so many of their pop hits, um, you know, don't you love her madly, uh, et cetera, et cetera. He he's the pop songwriter, but Jim's songwriting grows too, and so you know they're a great team with Robbie writing the AM single hit, and then Jim coming up with stuff like LA Woman, which is a long form song that does work in a rock context. So they were able to respond to, you know, the innovations of Led Zeppelin and the band and everything with these last two albums that come back and really, you know, put down a marker for the doors as a, as a serious quality, hard rock band. And, you know, and, and won back a lot of the critics, at least at the time. And let's go ahead and hear one of those songs. Let's hear Peace Frog, which has got music by Robbie Krieger and lyrics by Jim Morrison. for Morrison Hotel, which many people saw as a comeback album and an attempt by the Doors to uh, reestablish their rock credibility. And I have to say, I don't generally get into rock criticism because it's not the point of the show. 
But I have to say, I think it holds up very well with the the material put out by their peers at the time. And I, I recently saw David Crosby get in on Twitter and dissing the Doors, and it made me want to slap his face. Like, how dare you? You, <laughs> you know, you you could not touch them on at their best. I mean, Crosby did what Crosby did with the Birds and Crosby Souls and Nash, which is great. You know, inventing folk rock and and inventing you know soft rock and and, and all that, but. He never was a credible hard rocker, and the Doors, I think, I think really were. I mean, how do you guys rate them? Like, do you think they hold up? I mean, the whole idea of he's redeemed because of his commitment to art. If his, if he's a charlatan and a fake, that's there's nothing redemptive about that. But if if you think he made something lasting, then it is redemptive. What do you think? Right. I, I no, I agree. I, I think I don't think he's a charlatan and a fake at all. Um, and I think the songs hold up. And yeah, I, the opposite. I, 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 I find them incredibly oh. authentic. Go ahead, Shelley. Oh, I was just going to say Peace Frog is one of my favorites. It actually has a bass line on it, which I, I'm always attracted to good bass lines. And, maybe, and I was telling Christian before we went on air that may be one reason that I wasn't particularly like moved by the Doors music uh, when I was a teenager because I didn't hear a lot of bass um, on the records. I've, I've just, in retrospect, I'm thinking that that may be one of the things, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, I think the music, I mean, you know, I don't recognize the titles of the songs. And so when I went back to listen to a lot of them, I was like, Oh, I know all of these. I mean, I know I, I I'm familiar with all of the songs, even though I never had a doors album. I never owned a doors album. I think that's so, a lot right there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What were you going to say, Christian? Oh, um, you know, just to, to add on, uh, to, uh, you know, their worth, um, uh, and their, uh, uh, their influence uh, to later works, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I think certainly at the time, you know, they, you know, were the darkest band uh, before there really were, you know, dark bands, uh, which, you know, came on the horizon. I mean, it, you know, Black Sabbath doesn't even show up till 1970. Uh, and, uh, and, and as we know now, you know, their, um, uh, their imagery and uh, motifs were, you know, based on fantasy on, on hammer horror films. You know, this, this was about, uh, you know, selling a, a comic book version of, uh, uh, of themselves. Uh, and, you know, Morrison was everything that you got, um, uh, you know, most of it, not great. Um, uh, but some of it sublime, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, he's, I, I find him one of the most authentic uh, characters to ever come out of rock and roll. Yeah. And I think one of the best ways to measure the power of a musical artist is by their influence. And the fact that essentially all hard rock singers going forward are either going to be influenced by the golden boy, Robert Plant or the Prince of Darkness, Jim Morrison. And you get, you know, yeah. Ian Asbury of the cult and Glenn Danzig of the misfits and Danzig and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, his, Iggy Pop based his basically his whole act on Jim Morrison, and for some yeah. reason, you know, because Iggy is seen as as punk and and Jim is classic rock, there people miss that connection. But it's a direct, absolutely direct chain and handoff. But let's talk about the book before we wrap up. What do you guys think about the book? I mean, 
it's very salacious. You know, there's there, mm-hmm. it goes out of its way to mention the, him butt fucking groupies. Excuse the the terminology, but yeah. that's what they talk about. You know, and then going. They did on write this, a song yeah. called "Backdoor Man." <laughs> well, they covered the song, but uh, or yes, you're right. I'm sorry, that is a cover. Yeah, yeah, and and presumably Helen Wolf was talking about knocking on a girl's back door while her husband's away, but um, you know. Regardless, the, the I don't think that's what Jim had in mind. But sure. It's clearly not, and and it it's it's a very salacious book. I mean, it's almost it's clearly written. It's full of pictures. I mean, it's a great trade paperback. It's right up there with like mm-hmm. Vince Bugliosi's Helter Skelter, as far as lurid mm-hmm. portraits of L.A. in the late '60s. But I mean, do you feel like they went over the line and they were unfair to the artists, or is yeah. this just sort yeah. of the perfect way to summarize a pop phenomenon? You know, as, as a librarian, I know a little something about biographies. And um, this one reminded me of um, the fact that, uh, you know, I was a children's librarian for a long time. And we started um, consciously weeding out books, biographies that were fictionalized in the way this book is. So the way it's written, it, it makes it more salacious than if it were just written in a in a more of a nonfiction style, because they take they take interviews with people, but they weave them in as quotes about like a lot of the book is dialogue that's either quote kind of quoted from people's interviews but not attributed. So it makes it if you weren't like a savvy reader, you would be like, oh, yeah, this this actually happened this way. These people had this exact conversation, which, you know, can't possibly be true unless it was recorded, you know, that that yeah. the person was in the room when the conversation happened, because this is one person's telling of how the conversation went, which is obviously, you know, tinted in the way that person remembers it. And that I think that adds like 50 percent to the salaciousness, as you say, of the book, that it 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 reads like a novel really more than than a nonfiction, factual, you know, biography. Well, remember, Jerry Hopkins had uh, written uh, uh, the book or or a manuscript uh, years before and had tried to get it uh, published uh, uh, and was unsuccessful at it until he brought Danny Sugarman in to add uh, uh, quite a bit of the salaciousness um, right. first person <laughs> he was there. type of yeah. accounts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to Shelley's point, you know, as we know, memory is, is somewhat fallible and especially after a, a, a decade or, uh, or so um, where, uh, you know, you, you, you begin to uh, mythologize your past and, um, you know, uh, you know, let's face it, uh, by 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 this time, uh, you know, Morrison is a mythological creature and uh, Sugarman's um, uh, memories are probably um, uh, uh, couched and clouded in, in, in those uh, those um, those external uh, responses coming to him, uh, right. you know, uh, and, and, and of course, you know, you, 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 you know, I mean, I, I think the book, uh, uh, um, uh, proves the point in that, you know, Jerry Hopkins tried to get this sold. Nobody would sell it until they turned it into something more, uh, salacious and palatable to, uh, right. you know, a, a, a buying public. Uh, and sure enough, it, it did the trick, didn't it? It's kind of like reading the National Enquirer. I mean, especially uh, as to the point of Danny Sugarman's memories, 
he was a teenager when a lot yes. of this happened, right? Yes, he was. You know, so like if I t- told you like dialogue that happened from when I was a teenager, how like how accurate would that be? So this is yeah, this is more like a, a like a magazine article. Or yeah, I don't Dan- know. Danny began yeah. working with the Doors when he was twelve. Right. <laughs> That's crazy. And so many yeah. of the scenes happen in the offices of the doors. And, and it's clearly yeah. that's where he's interacted with Jim. Yeah, you know, just yeah. stuffing envelopes or whatever. Yeah, imagine you're 12 and Jim Morrison <laughs> is your buddy. What, what the fuck would that be like? You know, <laughs> that's, even weird, that's even weirder than reading this biography when you're 12 is yeah, right. being part of the biography when you're 12. <laughs> much, much weirder. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, so there's some questions there, but I mean, I think it, uh, to me, ultimately it's a net positive for Jim and the doors be- because it, it cemented their it legacy as great stars. It, yeah, it did, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's that obviously gained the attention of, uh, of Oliver Stone who went on to, to make a, a film about uh, them, uh, which is uh, also, uh, you know, uh, debated uh, on, yeah. on- it's uh, a good thing or a bad thing, uh, but just like Jim, and and, and again, I, I I keep going back to to the fact that that uh, Morrison himself was a complicated person. Uh, he think of his upbringing with a rising star in the United States Navy uh, at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the conservative family and those values, and then the rejection of that, uh, to the point where, where you are try to eliminate the, the history, uh, of your association with that family. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that tells you, I think all you need to know where to begin with who this cat was, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and he comes about right as this new, you know, uh, popular art form is, uh, beginning to really take over the entertainment, uh, airwaves, uh, and presents himself as the, uh, the dark Elvis Presley. So, I mean, it all, it all makes sense to me. Yeah. And, and his timing was so brilliant. I think it's very telling that the thing that triggered his, cutting off communication with his parents was a letter they wrote criticizing his concept of becoming a singer based on the fact that he never evinced any musical talent whatsoever, which is a totally (laughs) reasonable thing for parents to say, but he, you know, was so confident in what he was doing and was just not going to brook any criticism. And as, as somebody, you know, a failed musician myself, I see that's the difference between a successful musician and a failure is somebody who's like, you know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. I'm not going to hear any negativity. I'm going to associate with people that support my vision and I'm going to go for it and, you know, fuck you. And the the scene when his mom and younger brother do go to one of their concerts and he makes a point of screaming the lyrics of the end, which is, mother, I want (laughs) to fuck you, uh, right in her face. I mean, that had to have been completely shattering for her. Right. I mean, what, yeah. what an awful thing to do to your mother. And, and, and that she, at that, and that she even wanted to see him after that. I mean, she like tried to see him with his little brother in tow and he evaded her and he got everyone in the hotel and the concert venue to say, no, Jim's over there. No, Jim's over there and protect him from this horrible woman that had come to see him, you know, in performance and withstood that, that, that situation happening to her and she still wanted to see her son and he never saw her again. 
after yeah. that. Yeah, it's very sad. And to me, it just sort of reinforces, you know, this kind of success, both commercially and critically, comes at a high price. And well, he let, let, let me paid it. Let me add yeah. that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that a, a singular letter uh, stating that uh, maybe you shouldn't go down this career path uh, would cause uh, quite a reaction. There, there had to have been a whole lot of shit behind that uh, to get to this. Maybe, maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back. But um, I, I, I think uh, uh, the uh, uh, the divorce uh, to uh, his immediate family was uh, probably deeper than 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 just uh, uh, questioning his um, his abilities oh, as, as as a as a musician. The other thing that I might add is. Like like you, I I I interview a lot of uh, of rock stars, and uh, uh, to your point, um, yeah, I've heard over and over again that you know when you get right down to it, there was no plan B. I mean, that's what you have to do to to right, be able right. to make it. There there is only plan A, and plan B is uh, being homeless. Right. <laughs> Unless you're Mick right. Jagger at the London School of Economics, but yeah, yeah well, yeah, if you start off, uh, you know, with with that <laughs> behind you, right. but, but yeah, also not, yeah, no Plan B, and also the um, besides the not brooking criticism and going with people that support you is being able to withstand great discomfort, yeah, and you know, and not knowing what the future holds and not having any security. That that stands out for me in all the biographies I've read is and, not caring about security, which is why I was never a musician. You know? let's, let, let's say, let's say that, that, that this, this, this is anathema to, uh, uh, uh anathema, excuse me, anathema to, uh, to the previous generation, uh, you know, right. who had, had, had to go through things like the great depression and world war two, uh, you know, right. and now here comes this generation of, uh, of, uh, of Americans who just, given the middle finger to that whole world that that those people you know quote unquote created you know uh you know the uh the the corporate society and the organization man uh mm-hmm. and what have you uh you know they just said no the, I, we don't have to live this way and uh i reject that uh and to the point of no i reject you as a person right. and i don't even want to see you anymore so uh, there's a lot going on uh with uh, with the 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 interactions with uh, his family that tells us a lot about who morrison was for sure. And I, I feel like we've covered uh, the story of Jim Morrison and the Doors. Christian, Shelley, thanks so much for coming on. You can listen to these guys on the Rock and Roll Librarian and Rock and Roll Archaeology. Sorry for my pronunciation. They're both on the Pantheon Podcast Network, which Let It Roll is proud to be a member of. So thanks for coming on the show, guys. We're Thank glad you, to have thanks you, Nate. Us. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks for having us on your show. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate continues his Brian Jones obsession with a discussion of Alan Clayton's book, Brian Jones. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.